0: Colossians, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, verse 7 through 9, verse 15. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Tuhikas will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Latikaya and to Numpha and the church in her house. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, I seriously considered whether or not we should give a trigger warning before reading that passage this morning. I mean, did we just read that out loud in public in 2019 in a society that, at least in theory, is trying to take seriously things like racial equality, socioeconomic equality, gender equality? You know, if you were with us last week, you might remember we talked a little bit about the reality that sometimes you read things in the Bible that are just, they sound so offensive, so primitive and archaic that you just want to chuck it. So when you read this passage, it sounds like one of those places in the Bible you just want to chuck it. That would be a huge mistake. That would be a a tragic mistake. Why? Because we live in an age in which we consider ourselves morally enlightened. Which means that we have this expectation that, um, that we want the Bible to give us this highly detailed moral prescription that, um, that presents us with a series of, of social and cultural norms that exactly match the social and cultural norms that we have today. And if the Bible doesn't give us that, then we have to reject it because it's not as <clears throat> woke as we are. But think about it. Every age has a tendency to look at itself and say, we're the ones who've arrived. We have reached the height of of moral and social progress. And so we look back on people who lived 500 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and we say they weren't as morally enlightened as we are. You do realize as soon as we say that, that people living 100 years from now, or even 50 years from now, are going to look back at us and say the same exact thing which means that if all the Bible were to give to us was this detailed set of moral prescriptions um, that, that was, say, perfect for people who lived 500 years ago, it would be hopelessly out of date today. And, and that if, if the Bible gave us everything we would want for today, if, if Paul was saying everything we would want him to say for us today in our time and age, then it would be hopelessly out of date 100 years from now. Fortunately, the Bible gives us something way better than that. Yes, we look at the Bible and we want to see a a detailed um, prescription for our time and age. And when we look at this passage, that's what it looks like. We are getting a prescription for that time and age, but it's more than a prescription. Paul is embedded in this prescription for that age are are a set of principles that are for every age. And when we learn to see these principles, understand them, and, and apply them, then what we have is power, radical power, to transform our world. So here's the question. How does the gospel change the world? How does the gospel change society? And especially, how does the gospel transform what we would call unjust or oppressive systems and structures? We are in a series, we're coming to the end um, of a series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in the second half of this letter, Paul is laying out the Christian life for us. He's laying out Christian experience and he's saying, if the gospel is true... If, if the life, death, and resurrection really are the foundational events of history, what kind of implications does that have in our lives? So that's what's going on in the second half of this letter. And Paul is beginning to really spin these things out into highly um, relevant, practical applications and implications for our lives and our world. And, and he's talking about the household in this passage. What does the gospel mean for our household? How does the gospel change the world? How does the gospel change unjust systems And structures, let's look at it in three steps. We're gonna see that the gospel gives us the foundation for change, it gives us the method for change, and it gives us the practice of change. The gospel gives us a foundation, a method, and a practice for change. So let's look at each one of those in order. And first, we see the foundation for change. So we need to start by getting a little bit of the backstory. Um, You know, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a a Christian community that was living in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. Now, in the ancient world, letters like this were a very common form of communication. It's kind of like podcasts are today. Um, And in letters like this, they expected to receive instructions for the household, uh, for wives and husbands, for children and parents, and yes, even for Slaves and masters. This was the ancient world. Um, It was kind of like, you know, if you turn on the news, you expect to receive what's called regular programming. So in addition to the news, you also expect to get a weather report. You always expect to get a sports report. Regular programming. That's what this is. They, they expected to receive these kinds of instructions for the household in ancient, slet, in ancient letters like this. It was considered regular programming of the day. So they expected to receive instructions for wives and husbands and children and parents and so on and so forth. Because the household was the basic building block of Roman society. So Paul is talking to this basic building block of society and he's saying, if you can can change the building block, you can change society. That's what's going on here. Now, in that society, the man, the paterfamilias, he was the one that had ultimate absolute authority over everyone and everything in the household. And it wasn't just authority. The reason the paterfamilias had all of that authority was because in that society, the man was considered to be a superior being. And and women and slaves especially were considered inferior beings. Now, with that in mind, um, we look at this passage and we begin to see some of the remarkable things that this passage is showing us. Normally, in these instructions, the only person that would ever be addressed is the head of the household, the the paterfamilias. He was the the superior being. He was the one with the authority. And so these letters would always address themselves to the man and then say, now you have to dispense these instructions to the rest of your household. So they'd say, here, O man, are your instructions for your wives. And here, oh man, are the instructions for your children. And here, oh man, are the instructions for your slaves. Now you go and make sure that they receive these instructions. Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes right through the household, and he addresses every single member of the household as a unique individual, individual, with equal worth, value, dignity, and honor. He he approaches them and addresses them as individuals with the dignity and the honor of taking responsibility, their own responsibility, for their actions within the household. He treats them as free, equal, responsible, moral agents. Friends, this is radical. Paul is elevating the status of of those who, within that culture, would have been seen as having no status, no power, no authority. He's elevating the status uh, and, and saying they are human beings with equal status, worth, value, dignity, and honor in that society. Essentially, he's talking to people who, in that culture, would have been seen as being inferior beings, and he's saying, you're not. This is revolutionary. So, Um, Some of you might be wondering, by the way, um, well, why does he still tell them to submit and obey? Isn't that just perpetuating the, the, the injustice and the oppression of the ancient world? We're gonna get to that question, I promise you. But before we do that, we really need to grab a hold of what Paul is showing us here. Because not only is Paul elevating the status of women, children, and slaves in that society, he's relativizing the power of the man. He's, he's not only elevating the status of every human being, he's relativizing the power of the powerless. So if you look in this passage, notice when Paul says, husbands, love your, en- uh, love your, um, your wives. Jesus said, love your enemies. We should do that too. <laughs> Paul says, love your wives. Now we looked at that word love last week very important. We we look at this and it just flies right over our heads. Love, the word he uses is the word agape. It's a word that means self-sacrificial love that denies our own interests and desires in order to serve the interests and desires of someone else. It's a self-sacrificial kind of love. Paul is saying, oh husband, lay down your power. Oh husband, lay down your authority. Take the role of a servant. Take the role of a servant. You see that um, especially in Ephesians 5, which is kind of like a parallel set of household instructions that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. When Paul is talking to the husbands in Ephesians 5, um, he tells the husbands there, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But it's what he says after that that's really remarkable. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now we might say, okay, what's the big deal about that? I've been reading a book recently called Paul and Gender. It's by a very well-regarded biblical scholar named Cynthia Long Westfall. In her book, she points out very perceptively um, that Paul is, is, is overturning gender stereotypes in this passage. She points out when Paul talks about washing with water or, or presenting without spot or without wrinkle, what's he talking about? That's domestic language. That washing with water, that means giving someone a bath. Presenting without spot, that's doing the laundry. Presenting without wrinkle, that's doing the ironing. That's domestic language. That was was something that, that women did. That was something that servants did. Paul is saying to the men in this culture, you do that work that what normally would have been considered women's work or servant's work, Paul is saying to the men, you do that work. You take the role of a servant. He is purposefully subverting and overturning and undermining gender stereotypes and, and power and status roles in that ancient culture. It's really remarkable. And by the way, you see something very similar to that in the Gospels. Actually, you see this happening all throughout the Bible. But in the Gospels, for instance, at the very end of the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, the um, Gospel of John tells us there were two men there. One of them was Joseph of Arimathea, and the other one was Nicodemus the Pharisee. They were very rich, powerful, influential men of status and authority and, and standing in that community. And what they did was they took the body of Jesus, they uh, washed it, they, um, they wrapped it in linen cloths, and they anointed it with spices in that culture, that was considered women's work. And it wasn't like there weren't any women available there to do that work. There were, but these men did it themselves. Here's the point, friends. The gospel radically reorders power and status roles in our world. It, 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 it elevates the status of every human being, and it relativizes the the power of the powerful. It's radically reordering power and status roles in our culture. And I'll tell you what, this is very difficult for us to to see and appreciate as modern people. Um, For instance, just a little bit earlier in this letter, Paul, um, he's talking to the Christian community, says, if you're in Christ, in Christian community, he says, there is no Greek or Jew. There is no um, circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no slave or free. He's talking about what in that culture were class divisions, racial divisions, socioeconomic divisions. He's not saying that those divisions don't still exist in the world. He's saying they no longer matter. Everybody has equal status. It is very difficult for us as modern Western people to really appreciate and understand and value what we're seeing here in Paul, It's just it just kind of flies right over our heads. You know, we look at this and we say, well, of course, everybody has equal status as human beings. Duh. Yeah, we do know that. Why do we know that? Why is it that, that we know that, but people in the ancient world, they didn't know that? Why is that? We're looking at the answer. I was... Um, Mentioned last week, uh, a fellow named Tom Holland. He's a uh, an historian. He's an expert in ancient history in in the ancient world. He's written a number of best-selling books on ancient history. Um, He's a best-selling author and an expert in this area. And so last week I talked about an article that he wrote a few uh, years ago. But when I mentioned the article, it got me curious. I was thinking to myself, what's he been up to lately? And so I was online, and I found out that he did an interview just last year in which he says something really remarkable. Tom Holland is talking about the impact of the New Testament, of of the letters of Paul and the Gospels, on their impact and their continuing relevance for our world today. And he says this, that when you read the New Testament, and understand, he's a secular guy. He's not out to convert people to Christianity. He's just being honest about history. That's his job. He says that when you read the New Testament, what you have is, quote, almost everything that explains the modern world. The way the West has shaped concepts like international law, concepts of human rights, ultimately, he says, they don't go back to Greek philosophers. They don't go back to Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul. His letters, along with the four Gospels, are the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. Friends, the gospel radically reorders power and status roles in the world. It it elevates the status of every human being to equal and relativizes the power of the powerful and says they're all equal. That is the foundation for the way the gospel changes the world. And that leads to our next point. And that's the method for gospel change. So with that foundation in mind, how does the gospel go about transforming society? Especially, as I said, what we would call unjust or oppressive systems and structures. Well, one of the first things we need to see is how the gospel does not go about transforming society. If you look at this passage, Paul's talking to to women, he's talking to children, he's talking to slaves, people who in that culture would not have had power in that culture and, and one of the things he says to them is that the gospel doesn't change the world by applying external force to the systems and trying to change them from the outside. In other words, it doesn't happen by what we would call open rebellion or revolution, because he's talking to these people in that culture. They would have been the powerless ones. And essentially, he tells them to submit to their situation. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is actually pretty simple. In, in the ancient world, you know, Rome what wasn't just an empire. It was a ruthless cruel, exploitative, merciless empire. Anybody who stood up to the system, especially a small group of these early Christians, any kind of open protest, any kind of open rebellion, the Roman empire would put it down hard. I mean, just whammo, you're out of existence. So for them to stand up and protest and cry out for liberation from an unjust system, not only would they have been crushed, the whole Christian movement would have been crushed. But, But it's even bigger than that. Um, When Paul addresses those without power, the women, the children, and the slaves, notice that he always puts it, he he addresses them in the context of their relationship to Jesus. He always talks about them and their identity in the Lord, he says. So notice, he says, wives submit as is fitting in the Lord. Children obey for this pleases the Lord. Slaves obey for it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. He, He doesn't talk to the men like that, except in one case, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But, but that is how he talks to the powerless in that culture. There are two things going on with that. And the first is this. He's encouraging them that they really belong to the Lord. That they have value and worth and status in the eyes of God. He's saying that you belong to Jesus. His name is on you. His love is on you. He's encouraging them that they belong to the Lord. But second, he's reminding them of the gospel way of of bringing change to the world, of the Jesus way of bringing change to the world. You could think about it like this. Um, Imagine that you wanted to get from point A to point B. In order to get there, you've got to build a road. But in between you and point B, there's a huge mountain. And the only way for you to get to that point B, to build a road and get to point B, is to take down the mountain. How are you gonna do it? One way is you could take a bunch of sticks of dynamite and just start blasting away at the mountain from the outside. How's that gonna work out for you? Not so well. Mountains tend to be rather resilient to that kind of external force. So do social structures especially unjust, exploitative, oppressive social structures. Look at history. What happens whenever one empire gets taken down? Another empire takes its place. Oftentimes, um, an even more unjust, oppressive, or exploitative empire comes in the place of the one that just got taken down. Empire is, is, you know, that's political machinery. That's human power to change the world. The gospel does not say that the way the world gets changed is by just replacing one empire with another That's what we get so worked up about in our political machinery in this country and in this world because we think empire has the power to change the world. It doesn't. The gospel doesn't say that the world gets changed by just replacing one empire with another. It's way more subversive than that and therefore way more powerful. Because look at what Paul says to the slave masters in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, "...provide your slaves with what is right and fair, for you also have a master in heaven." Paul is saying, oh, Listen, man, I know that in the world you're seen as being the master and the authority over everyone and everything, but you're not. You're not a master. You have an ultimate master in heaven. Again, he's relativizing the power of the powerful, but he also says, Provide them with what is right and fair. Literally, what that says is provide them, your slaves, with justice and equality. Those are the literal words in the New Testament. Provide them with justice and equality. Now, what does that mean? Remember what we were talking about in the first point. The foundational principle of gospel change is the radical, unconditional equality of every single human being. Paul elevates the status of every human being to the status of equality. So when you look in this passage, what you have is the very first Christians... Beginning to take that principle, that gospel principle of the unconditional equality of every human being, and then begin working out the implications of that principle to the the furthest extent that they were capable of imagining in that time and place. So in this context, you see Paul, he's talking to these early Christians, um, and, and he's saying, look, slave masters, how do you work out this implication? Husbands, wives, children, everybody, how do we work out the implications of these? Listen, I, you know, I know that when we look at the ancient world, it's easy for us to, to get so angry when we see it. It's easy for us to be angry at the Bible for not doing what we think it ought to do more about it. And that's actually very understandable because it's not inappropriate to look back at the ancient world and judge it. Slavery is evil. But the gospel doesn't change the world by blasting away at the systems from the outside. It does something far more subversive than that. Paul gives us principles. And so in those um, relationships, he's talking to the slave masters. He says, I want you to work out the implications of this equality in your relationships. So yes, what was their answer to that? They say, here's how we're going to do it. In, In the world, yes, we may be slaves and masters, but in the church, we're brothers and sisters. In the world's eyes, we may be unequal in status, but in the church, we're equal in status. We're equal in status. So, for instance, and you see that actually beginning to work itself out in that community, in this letter. You notice I included verses 7 and 9 from later on in chapter 4. Paul says, Tychicus is coming back. Oh, and by the way, he's coming with Onesimus, who's our faithful and dear brother. Onesimus, if you don't know, was a runaway slave. And you could read about his story in Paul's letter to Philemon a little later in the New Testament. Now, again, we don't notice this because it just flies right over our heads. Paul calls Onesimus a dear brother. In, in that culture, brother was the language of equality. Paul is saying, you treat Onesimus as a brother. He is a brother. He's one of you. He is equal in status to you. That was subversive to empire. Because in that culture, brother and sister, that was the language of equality. Now, see, was Paul calling for an open revolution? No. And, And I know that that's probably infuriating to us, but he was actually calling for something far more powerful. Far more powerful than that. And I'll tell you what. You know, um, women and slaves and children in the ancient world and, and, and the poor of the ancient world, they flocked to the church. The early church transformed the ancient world. Women, slaves, children, the poor, all the people in that society who had no power, they flocked to the church. Why? because they knew that they would get treated in the church in a way that they would never be treated in the world outside. They knew that in the church, they had a status and an honor and a dignity that they could find nowhere else in the ancient world, and it transformed the Roman empire. Why? I'll tell you why. Or rather, let Tom Holland tell you why. Um, In that interview I was just talking about, he goes on later on in that interview to say something really amazing. The question that they were discussing at that point in the interview is, how did the gospel actually change the world? How did the gospel change the world? Here's what Tom Holland says. He says, I think of Paul as a kind of depth charge beneath the foundations of the ancient world. A depth charge is, is an explosion that usually it happens in the ocean. It's deep, deep down in the bottom of the ocean And and then the explosion will go off, and and if you're on the surface of the water, you may not even know that anything happened right away until the explosion works its way to the surface. Tom Holland says, I think of Paul as a kind of depth charge deep beneath the foundations of the ancient world. It's not anything that you particularly notice if you're living at that time, but then you start feeling this kind of rippling outwards. I think essentially what Paul's significance was is he sets up ripple effects of revolution throughout Western history. So the 11th century establishes this idea that society has to be reborn, reconfigured, that vested interests, power interests, have to be torn down. And then what we call the Reformation is a further ripple effect of that and the Enlightenment is a further ripple effect of that. It's spilled out so much that now in the 21st century, we don't even realize where these ripple effects are coming from. We just take them for granted. Remember that mountain we were talking about? What if instead of blasting away at the mountain from the outside, what if instead of that we were to... to To drill a hole, a tunnel, deep into the bowels of the mountain. You know, if you just blast away at it from the outside, nothing ever changes. But if you go deep enough, if you go deep enough inside, right to the heart of the mountain, and set off a depth charge there, it just implodes the mountain from within. That's what the gospel does. Friends, the gospel radically reorders power and status relationships in the world. And it does so not by blasting away at them from the outside, but by renewing and transforming them from the inside. And I know that for us, with our 21st century eyes, it's frustrating and probably even infuriating to look at this passage and feel like Paul is just perpetuating unjust and oppressive systems and structures. And yet what we don't realize is that we're looking at the ripple effects... And we don't realize that we're looking right at the depth charge that produced those ripple effects. Or we could say it like this. We want Paul to give us the final word. Just tell us what it's supposed to look like, Paul. Give us the final ultimatum, the the ultimate ethic for what our lives and our society and our culture and our politics, give us the final word on what that's supposed to look like. And Paul doesn't do that. It's so frustrating to us. But Paul gives us something better than the final word. Friends, the gospel gives us a new word because empire is incapable of giving us the final word. The gospel gives us a new word. God says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. You would never have expected it. You would never have been able to see it coming. I'm doing something so radical, so unique, so new, so revolutionary, that nobody can conceive of it. The gospel gives us a new word, because the empire is incapable of giving us a final word. You know, political machinery, Washington, D.C. The only words empire can give us are words that it has to borrow from the gospel anyway. What are ideas like human rights? Progress. Ideas of justice, fairness, equality, and dignity. Ripple effects. That's what those are. So we look at this world, and, and we want to try and imagine a world differently. The ancient world was doing the same thing. Paul doesn't give us a final word. He gives us a new word. Because the empire is incapable of giving us the final word. And so, Christians in every time and place have taken that word of the gospel, those principles of foundational change, and they've had to, to work out the implications of those principles in every time and place and begin imagining a world that might look different. So, you know, for instance, maybe Paul was incapable of imagining a world without slavery. We have to realize, yeah, it's easy for us to look back on that world with our 21st century eyes and think, well, if I'd lived then, I would have been able to imagine a world without slavery. The institution was so prevalent that nobody could have imagined that. So maybe Paul was incapable of imagining a world without slavery, but as Christians throughout the ages began to take the implications of the gospel and work those implications out into their lives and into their society, they began to be able to imagine a world that was different. So a mere 300 years after Paul, and historically speaking, that's not a long time. 300 years after Paul, Gregory, he was bishop of Nyssa, he preached a very famous sermon in which he said this, and by the way, he's going to use, he's talking about, um, Obels and staters which are units of currency like dollars or yen. So he, he's, here's what he says. How many obols for the image of God? How many staters did you get for selling the God-formed human being for Jesus Christ, who knows the worth of human nature, has said an entire cosmos is not worthy of being exchanged for a human soul. Who can buy a person or sell a person once you realize that they're in the image of God? Gregory of Nyssa was the very first person in the history of the world to openly question the institution of slavery itself. The very first time it happened ripple effects. Or 2,000 years after Paul, we have Martin Luther King, who preached a very famous sermon called The American Dream, in which he said this. He says, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every human being, from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every human being is made in the image of God. This is why we must fight segregation with all our nonviolent might. Ripple effects. Ripple effects. Not blasting away at the world from the outside, but renewing and transforming from the inside. Friends, the gospel, the new word of the gospel has the power to radically reorder and transform every time, every age by enabling us to imagine a world differently and bring that world into existence. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the foundation of gospel change the elevation of every human being to equal status and the relativization of of the power of the powerful. We've seen the method of that change, not blasting away at the outside, but renewing and transforming from the inside. Lastly, what is the practice of change? In other words, what would that look like in our time and places? We begin thinking out the implications of this for our age we only have a few minutes left. We're not even going to begin to go anywhere near discussing this. But that's a conversation that we have as a church. That's a conversation, not just this church, but every church in this city, in this nation, in the world, throughout history, we're having this conversation together to think out the implications of the gospel. But with that in mind, let me offer you just a few thoughts. I mean, these are really 30,000 foot overview, but let me offer you just a few things that I think are pretty important for our world today. And the first is this. One of the ripple effects of the gospel is that we now live in a world that we're taking a more, I don't want to say it, open and, and confrontational, appropriately confrontational posture towards systems of power, unjust systems of power, where that's actually more possible now in our culture. So we have things like freedom of speech, the right to assemble, speaking truth to power, We live in an age where those things are actually possible. That's one of the ripple effects of the gospel. And so now we live in an age where it's actually possible to, in an appropriate way, um, be more confrontational towards unjust systems of, of oppression And exploitation. We can do that. Especially that means that those who in our culture would be considered the voiceless and the powerless actually have a little bit more of a voice and a little bit more power. So, again, Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement is a really good example of that. So, but even more than that, when you look at the gospel, Paul urges women and slaves, again, it frustrates us, he urges them to be more passive in their situation because in that culture, Uh, In that society, to be more confrontational, they just would have been crushed. But in our culture, in our age, it is possible for for those without a voice, without power, to be more, to have more of a voice, to have more power. But I would suggest even more than that, um, one of the principles you see throughout the Bible... Um, throughout the Bible, is that God is always calling those in the culture that have the power to lay down their power and to give up their power for those with less power. To speak up for the voiceless, the powerless, the marginalized, and the oppressed. To speak up for them. So that means that if, like me, if you're a member of the dominant culture or the privileged culture, then we actually have a responsibility to, to use the power that we have, the voice that we have, to show solidarity with those who have less power, less of a voice, um, less um, privilege in our culture, and to use our power on there. We have to speak up for them. In our day and age, we have much more of an ability to do that in our culture. So let me try and put this as concisely as I can. Yes, the gospel changes the world, not by blasting away its systems from the outside, but by transforming and renewing them from the inside. But that is not an excuse for passivity or cowardice. So if we have the ability to bring immediate or substantive change to urgent needs in our culture, we have a responsibility to do that. Racial injustice in our culture right now is a very good example of that. There are many others, too many to name right now. But that's the first thing, one of the ripple effects is we have a greater way of leveraging the freedoms we're given as citizens in this day and age for the gospel for change in society. Secondly, another one of the ripple effects um, of the gospel is um, gender equality in the home and in the church gender equality in the home and in the church. So um, I mentioned the, the a passage in Ephesians just a little bit ago. Parallel set of instructions that Paul gives to that household. Paul begins his instructions there. It's really amazing. He, he's giving instructions to the whole Christian community. And, and the, the last thing he says before he's going to go into detail is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to everybody. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he goes on to talk to wives and husbands and parents and children and slaves and masters and everybody else. Mutual submission, mutual respect and honor. So in that culture, there was an expectation for the wives and the children and so on for, for them to be much more submissive, obey in everything. But Paul, he plans a death charge here. When Paul talks about mutual submission, he's planting a depth charge in that culture that brings ripple effects as we go throughout history, that we begin to imagine a world that looks a little bit more differently and begin to imagine different ways of expressing that mutual submission that are appropriate for our cultural age. So I would suggest, and listen, I understand this is really, these things are debated and controversial in the church, and we should always treat each other with charity and compassion kindness, humility, patience, forgiveness, when we're talking about these things. But I would suggest that as I've studied the Bible over the past several years, I've grown more and more convicted that Paul gives us this depth charge that he plants here. It, gives us a, it sets us on a trajectory for a view of marriage in which each person is an equal partner, both of whom have the responsibility to treat each other with love honor, respect, and service in the context of that relationship. But it's not just in the home. There's also um, the ripple effects here of gender equality in the church. So, for instance, you'll notice the very last thing we included was, um, it may have seemed a little um, incongruent with the rest of the passage, but Paul at the end says, give my greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, first of all, I just love the fact that this woman's name is recorded in Scripture for all eternity. I mean, what an honor, you know. Our names are going to be forgotten, except by God. But her name is recorded in Scripture for all eternity. In, in that um, context, here's what's going on. Um, Nympha was probably a single woman because she's not named with a man. Whether a widow or never married, we don't know. But she was a single woman. She was uh, no doubt a wealthy woman, because to host a a church in your home, you had to have one of these Roman households and be the head of that household. She's single, she's wealthy, and we don't know exactly what her role as uh, the host of a house church would have been, but it would have been more than just setting a table. She would have had some kind of leadership role in the church. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're single, and especially if you're a single woman, that there is honor and dignity for you in the church. And even more than that, there are roles of responsibility and leadership for you in the church. It's not just for men. It's not just for married people. It's for everybody. Friends, the gospel radically reorders power and status relationships in the world. It elevates the status of every human being and relativizes the power of the powerful. And it does so not by blasting away its its structures and systems from the outside, but by renewing and transforming those systems from the inside. And the only reason it can do all of that is because Jesus Christ already did all of it for us on the cross. Because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what is that? It's the ultimate depth charge. I mean, think about what we've seen as we've walked throughout this series. Chapter 1, Colossians, who is Jesus Christ? He's the God, he's the Lord, he's the master of the universe. Chapter 1 says that all things were created in him, through him, and for him. He's the ultimate master and Lord, so that all the powers and the authorities, all the structures and the systems, they all belong to him. He created them, they're for him. He's master over all of them. He's not just a superior being. Jesus Christ is the supreme being. And yet, on the cross, the master and Lord of the universe took the role of a servant in order to show us what real power really looks like. So that when the gospel speaks to those who are voiceless and powerless in the world, it's coming from somebody who really knows. Because Jesus Christ, on the cross, he submitted. He obeyed. He showed us this is how the world gets changed. The voice that spoke all things into being became voiceless on the cross. The power that brought the world into existence became powerless on the cross. So when, the, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and all the leaders and powers and, and authorities in the world looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, they would have said, there's one revolutionary that will never bother us again. They had no way of knowing that they were looking at the ultimate death charge in the history of the world. Only Jesus Christ is the one who got exploded. So that his death and his resurrection is now ground zero for all of the ripple effects that we see in our world today. Friends, just as it was probably impossible for Paul to imagine a world without the institution of slavery, it's impossible for us to imagine what this world would look like without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ripple effects of that are, are inconceivable for us to imagine what the world would look like without that. The gospel radically reorders power and status relationships in this world. And when the depth charge of the cross gets deep inside of you, when it gets deep inside of your heart, it it sets off a torrential series of ripple effects in your own life. It changes you. It transforms you. And it makes you a part of its ripple effects in the rest of the world. Is it doing that in you? Is it doing that through you? Let the word, the new word of the gospel grab a hold of you, change it from the inside and make you part of its ripple effects in the world around you. It doesn't just change you, it changes the whole world. Let's pray.